Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Horner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're honored to introduce today's guest, Nick Cavanaugh, founder and CEO of Sensible Weather, headquartered in Santa Monica, California. Welcome, Nick. Thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Nick, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science? Sure. So I guess I've always been kind of a math and science nerd, um, you know, coming up in, in high school in Seattle. Um, I then went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, to their engineering school, uh, where I majored in bioengineering, but had a handful of minors, including math and environmental studies, entrepreneurship, chemistry. I basically didn't, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do science. Indeed, bioengineering was, was kind of you had to do all of the science and all of the math to get that major. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of, sort of what happened to me in undergrad, but then towards the end. So I always had this sort of passionate interest in the environmental sciences, uh, and climate and oceanography, um, and sort of pursuing that on the side through, uh, you know, a couple of things. I did a, a semester at sea, um, while I was an undergrad, the oceanography school, uh, interned, uh, at Scripps, uh, over one summer where, at, by the end of my my undergraduate career, I actually ended up applying to Scripps Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego, for a master's and PhD program in oceanography. Um, so it was kind of I kind of came upon upon the climate sciences and oceanography uh, at this this intersection of of the math that I really like doing, um, looking at things through a mathematical lens, through a probabilistic lens. Um, but then you know that that intersected with my my interest in the outdoors, and so that's that's kind of, kind of where those things came together. Oh, it sounds like, at least with your undergraduate degree, you made you made the right choice because you had all the foundations, you know, all the coursework that's the foundation for a meteorology degree. So, uh, did you do that on purpose? Were you, were you thinking, you know, this would be something good to major in in case I decide I want to switch to something else? No, I went through a handful of majors uh, as an undergrad, all through engineering, but I, I debated other majors as well. So started as a, a electrical and systems engineer, actually, um, which and I guess engineering degrees in general, basically what they all have in common is you do a ton of math and science um, as you know, prerequisites for the rest of the, the core engineering discipline that you end up majoring in, um, you know, to, to the extent that engineering, you know, engineering requires a lot of, you know, science experience. Uh, it just ends up being a very good background for lots of things, uh, including meteorology, but as well as finance, or if you want to go into math, whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I really got to got to undergraduate school uh, to Penn, and there was just so many options of math and science courses you could take. So I'm just like, well, I'm going to take all of them, and I'll figure out <laughs> I'll figure out what that equates to <laughs> when I'm done. So it sounds like you are an avid learner and, and a happy, motivated learner um, who, who seems to enjoy taking classes, not just for the end goal, but for the 
entire learning experience. Yeah, indeed. And actually in grad school, you know, not only did I obviously take classes associated with my degree, but I also audited many courses. Uh, so just <laughs> sit, sitting in and, and not even receiving credit. So let's back up just a moment. And you talked about how you blended your passion for the outdoors with your educational career. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about some opportunities you took as you were going through your undergrad degree and how that led to you zeroing in on oceanography and then finally after school uh, securing the job you wanted in your chosen profession. So let's start at the beginning. What what do you love about the outdoors? What do you love doing there? And, and how have you blended that so far? Yeah, sure. So, so I'm a big skier, uh, first and foremost. I grew up outside of Seattle in Bellevue where folks that are maybe not from Washington State or have much experience there maybe don't think of Washington as a destination ski area, but indeed it is. There are dozens of mountains in Washington and in, in British Columbia as well. You know, I, I grew up, you know, through through the 90s where, you know, some interesting things. Well, first of all, I guess, I guess living on the outskirts of Seattle, the mountains are low um, elevation-wise. So they always tend to be right on the rain-snow line. Uh, so when you're thinking about planning your ski trip, you're always looking at forecasts and saying, all right, you know, where's going to receive the most precipitation? What's the freezing level? You know, what are the winds going to do? Is it going to be clear? Is it not going to be clear? So you're constantly thinking about these things, you know, sort of intrinsically through a probabilistic lens because you're basically trying to plan what fun thing you're going to do this weekend. Um, so that's where all of this really started is just kind of figuring out where I was going to go skiing to get the best snow. Um, and then, you know, one of the probably more interesting things that happened while I was growing up in that area was the winter of, of 98-99, um, where Mount Baker, which is one of my home mountains, received almost 100 feet of snow. Uh, cur- currently, uh, you know, still the world record snowfall for a season, um, which was, you know, as, as a kid growing up with an interest in the sciences, as well as a passion for skiing, you know, seeing one of your home mountains like truly receive the world record snowfall in a year and going there to see what that was like. And it was basically like the chairlifts were buried um, and then they had to, they dug <laughs> out three chairlifts um, so that they could run the you know, the mountain could open. But you're like sitting on the chairlift and your skis are like a foot from the snow. Um, wow. Yeah. So like you know pretty pretty silly. But yeah, I mean so th- so those types of childhood experiences kind of anchored me um, kind of my my interest uh, in the atmospheric sciences. Um, and then when I went went to Penn, you know, at, at that point I, I didn't think that I would pursue a career in the atmospheric sciences, climate sciences. Um, so, you know, went into engineering where I was like, okay, I'll pursue something where hypothetically I can, you know, kick the can down the road and figure out what I actually want to do later. Um, but at the same time, in my second semester freshman year, I actually did my semester abroad, um, with the SEA program out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Um, so it's, it's like, a you know, a quarter long oceanography dedicated program where half, roughly half of it, you go to sea doing applied oceanography, um, where it's like at the time I was like more like, oh, I you know, still don't want to necessarily be an oceanographer, but that seems like a really cool thing to do. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'll go do that. Um, and then while I was at Penn, you know, I was taking environmental science courses, ended up minoring in environmental science, mostly because it was like, you know, I don't know if I want to be an oceanographer, but these are cool courses. I'm going to take them. Um, and then, you know, after my junior year, I was thinking about what I wanted to do that summer, um, and I found the internship at Scripps, and I'm like, wow, Scripps, San Diego, the beach, that seems like a cool thing to do. I'm going to go do that. Uh, but, you know, at the end, kind of, you know, all these things end up blending where, 
you know, the stuff that you're learning, you know, following your passions in the environmental sciences, you realize that, you know, there's a whole world of, you know, intersection with, with math and engineering and, and building things and understanding how things work, um, which, you know, studying the earth is it's a fantastic medium. Um, so that's, you know, that's really how I, how I got there. And at the end, you know, made last, last minute decision my senior year to take the GREs and apply to grad school and ended up at Scripps, which is my first choice. So um, once you got through all your schooling, what, what was your first job in the field? What, what, what avenue did you go in the beginning? And then what led you to starting a business? Yeah, so also coming out of Penn, you know, one of, one of the other things, Penn has the Warren School. Um, so very, very business focused, um, took a lot of statistics, business statistics, as well as economics, um, was looking, you know, if, if I didn't end up going to grad school, was looking at finance, uh, particular quant finance, where you could basically use, you know, math and coding and engineering to figure out problems, but then you can, you can apply them and actually, you know, make things that work in the real world. Uh, quant is short for quantitative, yes. meaning you're you're the numbers guy on the finance team. The numbers guy on a finance team, right? Um, and so, while I was applying to grad schools, I was also applying to to quant jobs in finance, uh, hedge funds. But then got into my PhD program of choice. You know, kind of you're doing these things simultaneously while you're a student, so you don't really know what's gonna what's gonna come to fruition until the end. Um, but ended up getting into my PhD program. So I said, okay, like, you know, if I go into finance now, I'll never go back to school. So I should go do the PhD first. I can always go to finance. Um, and so I went, spent, spent a little over four years at Scripps doing a master's and a PhD degrees are in oceanography, but generally more focused on the atmosphere and atmospheric predictability. Um, but always with, with an eye towards applications. Um, and in particular, where, when you're thinking about, long-term predictability and probabilistic predictability in the atmosphere, um, a lot of times where applications pop up are in financial and physical risk. Um, so I had this skew towards, you know, even before going to grad school, um, was always kind of thinking in this financially oriented sense. Um, and a lot, you know, a lot of my graduate work was almost angled in that direction anyway. Um, not so much because I knew I had an application in mind, more that, I knew that there were applications that were possible and I didn't know if anybody was actually doing them. So when I, when I graduated, got my PhD, actually took my first hard look at industry, basically didn't find anything that I found was, you know, that I thought would be pretty interesting you know, to do. And so my first job actually out of, out of school was a postdoc. Um, so I went to, <laughs> yeah, so I went to, um, you know, instead of, you know, taking the plunge into industry right after grad school, I decided there really wasn't anything interesting at the moment. Um, so I went to postdoc at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, where I was for almost two years uh, in their climate extremes group. Um, so, you know, that was basically more of the same, which, which I loved. You know, I, I, th I thought that my time in academia and my decision to do a PhD was probably one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Um, that being said, after two, you know, two years out of postdoc, uh, I was actually recruited into finance by some headhunter. I have no idea how they found me. Um, but by a, a London-based commodities hedge fund called Cumulus. Um, so Cumulus, now defunct, got, got bought by Citadel a couple of years ago. Um, formerly, it was one of the largest commodities hedge funds in the world. And as the name would suggest, Cumulus, like the clouds, uh, they had a big focus on weather. Um, so they had a team there, roughly a dozen of us, uh, various, you know, earth science-y disciplines, oceanography, meteorology, atmospheric science, physics, et cetera. Um, and our, our task is effectively treating 
weathering climate data as a quant data source and figuring out how weather impacts various markets, commodities markets, generally through supply and demand, where, say, quintessential example is, is electricity. Um, in the U.S. in particular, you know, it gets really hot, everybody in the U.S. turns on their AC, or it gets really cold, everybody turns on their heat. So AC, that's electricity, it's electrical demand. Um, heat, that's either electrical or it's natural gas demand. But natural gas is also burned to make electricity. Um, so basically, whether it's hot or cold dictates how much demand there is in the market, and that has a direct relationship with price. Um, so the idea, you know, it's a pretty simple, you know, running through that thought process is pretty simple, but it's remarkably complex, as you can imagine, you know, figuring out exactly how the weather impacts demand regionally, building models for it, making weather predictions, and ultimately rolling that up to what we think the price of electricity in a particular area is going to be. Yeah, and in New England, <laughs> we know what that means. Indeed. When... <laughs> yes, so we, we trade really a, lot cool. of, a, a lot of like... New England, a lot of New York, PJM, which is kind of the this whole mid-Atlantic area, uh, very liquid elect- electricity markets because of polar, polar vortices. Um, so it's one of the most most active, most liquid, um, liquid being actively traded um, commodities markets in the world. So you started off um, at this position. Did you actually have to move to London or is that just where it was headquartered? No, no, I moved to New York. Um, so the, yeah, the fund was headquartered in, in London, which was great, um, you know, experiences later on, European hedge funds are way nicer places to work than American funds. Um, so while the fund was headquartered in London, uh, we had an office in New York City, uh, which is where I worked, moved to New York. Um, but we also had offices in Edinburgh, Geneva, and Auckland. Um, and, oh, nice. Yeah, we were allowed to go to any office uh, to, to collaborate pretty much any time. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Europe, a lot of time in Geneva um, as a skier. So essentially going to Geneva to work. So our agricultural team was in Geneva. Um, I would go work with them and then go ski on the weekends. And, and so how did um, this position lead you to deciding to start your own business? Yeah. So, um, you know, the two financial areas in which weather risk uh, pops up is, you know, the first one is capital markets. Uh, the second one is insurance. I argue, you know, I think of insurance very broadly, even in the capital markets where we're trading electricity, for example. Um, a lot of what we are doing is effectively providing insurance to the market. Uh, to take that, that polar vortex example, um, all of the you know, electricity traders in the market are looking at weather in some way, shape, or form. Um, but if you're, say, you're a, you're a power plant in the Northeast, you know that you're going to have to burn fuel in order to produce electricity. But if a polar vortex comes, the cost of that fuel could go to infinity. So if you're looking at a forecast and you're saying, oh, no, a polar vortex is coming, you know, I, I better b- start buying fuel now, start hoarding fuel, whether physically or financially, the price of those markets goes way up, goes sky high. Whereas us on the other side, we're, we're purely speculative and we're running the numbers, you know, we're saying, all right, you know, this market is overbought. It's too high. This is driven by fear. Um, you know, these, these companies are afraid that the price of the, you know, whatever fuel they're burning is going to keep going up. So they're trying to protect themselves. And so what we would do is basically short that market saying, you know, we don't think it's going to keep going that high, but if it does, you know, we'll pay for it. And so we put on a market short 
where that was effectively what we're doing, and that's so-called a risk premium capture strategy. Um, but what that you know, that's exactly the way that insurance works. Um, you know, people buy insurance to make sure that if they have losses that exceed some, you know, some dramatic number, uh, they don't actually have to pay for them. So I was kind of thinking broadly, you know, when I, when I left the hedge fund space um, about about risk, uh, both you know, capital market risk as well as insurance risk, as well as looking at uh, what was going on in the world. This was in 2018. Um, and just the increase in catastrophic weather events, uh, increase in interest in, in climate and climate risk in general, uh, it being more of an in vogue topic. Uh, there were you know, data sources, particularly from satellites, that really taken off. So the quality of weather observations and weather forecasts had just dramatically increased. There's some data architecture that started popping up uh, that I thought you could put all these things together and make for a really compelling platform, except you wouldn't have to be managing it on a supercomputer. So sort of all these things sort of came together. Where I was like, well, you know, now now's the time. You know, now I've gained some experience both as an academic as well as an industry. Um, always knew that I wanted to, you know, eventually start my own business in this space. Uh, and you know, it's just it was the right time. And so so left. You know, what was then Citadel. Um, so Citadel bought acquired the first fund and spent a year working on a proof of concept, basically playing around with data to understand exactly what I was going to do. And at the end of that year, raised our first round and started Sensible. All right. So that is a wonderful story. Thank you for taking us through and giving us a primer on the energy markets. Before I move on to dig in more into Sensible Weather and what uh, makes your organization unique in the weather risk industry, I wanted to back up and drill in on your comment about U.S versus European hedge fund culture. I'm always interested to learn about how the same type of organization can differ based on where it is in the world. So let's hit that first and give me a sense. I, I'm not looking for you to uh, embarrass anyone yeah, or slight say, anyone, but just subject. give me a sense for what about the culture is different between the two. I mean, I guess... Um, I found European European finance culturally to be more uh, intellectual, I guess. Um, so it's a little less cutthroat. It's more collaborative. Um, also, culturally, Europeans, you know, both in finance and outside of finance, I think they have a little bit of a, more of a skew towards like living life. Um, so, for example, you know, basically everything shuts down in August. Um, that doesn't happen in the U.S., but in Europe it does, um, and it's totally fine if you just go, you know, go wherever you want, take six weeks off, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, sure, sure enough, I think American companies in general, but definitely in finance, that's just that's just not the way that it works. There's more of a competitive, hard edged nature to U.S. businesses. Everybody's always trying to get ahead. Then perhaps European, we could name it as the work-life balance is more yep. balanced. Let's move back to sensible weather. Um, I'm sure in every business plan, part of the job is making your business unique. So can you give us a little bit of insight into what makes sensible weather unique in the weather risk market? Sure, yeah. So at this point, there's there's a handful of, well, weather, weather risk management companies, whether they're insurance companies or analytics providers or, or what have you. Um, it's certainly a growing field. You know, climate tech right now is hot. 
Um, we have, you know, competition and the, so we're a parametric insurance company, uh, sort of broadest umbrella term. You know, we have competition among parametric insurers. Uh, what we do that nobody else is really doing is focusing on consumers. Uh, the way that we are allowed, you know, we enable ourselves to focus on consumers is we're very, very fast. So our first product in market called the weather guarantee allows consumers who are traveling or experiencing some outdoor destination to offset their weather risk. So quite simply, you know, if it rains while you're at the beach and you want it to be sunny and warm, we can pay you back. Uh, it's basically the simplest version of parametric insurance that anyone can think of. However, in order to do that, you know, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. It's a simple product. But what we need to do on the back end in order to enable that is do very specific underwriting anywhere in the world um, using tons and tons of data. Uh, so there's a huge data problem. Um, moreover, we have to do that underwriting very, very quickly to be sold at point of sale. When people book you know, their, their hotel in Waikiki Beach, you essentially need to pop up with a price instantaneously. Otherwise, Hilton is not going to let you on their website. So you have to be, you know, not only flowing all this data in some arbitrary manner, you have to be doing it very, very quickly. If you can't do it quickly, you can't sell a product. And then finally, on the, once you've sold the product, you know, the, the next, next step is we have to be monitoring weather real time, effectively everywhere. Uh, so scraping the highest fidelity data sets at the highest frequency to really understand what's going on to consumers wherever they, they've told us they're going to be so that we can initiate, you know, initiate a claim on their behalf and effectively you know, make this product feel like magic. You know, we want it to be, you know, it starts raining while you're at the beach. We send you a text message, say, hey, we know you're at the beach. It started raining. Here's some money. Um, so you know, that's, that's kind of the fun thing that we do that nobody else is really chasing down. And how do consumers find out about your organization? Like when they are booking, um, how does that work? Yeah, so there's, a, there's a, a type of finance that's popping up called embedded finance, embedded fintech. And essentially what that means is, is we use online distribution, so e-commerce websites, whether that's, you know, think like an Expedia, but it doesn't have to be an Expedia, but you're booking, you're booking your trip. Uh, once you get to the checkout flow, um, there's, you know, optional add-ons. The, the closest thing that you might think of is travel insurance, um, where you, you know, you check the box and you say, okay, I want to, I want to insure this trip. Um, so that's, you know, the kind of embedded point of sale version, uh, of what we do, which is, which is most, most of our revenue is coming from those channels. We also structure the product where it's included in something that you're booking. So for example, you book a campground and this, this service is actually purchased by the campground on your behalf. Um, and then, and then finally, we, we, we offer a sort of post-purchase uh, type implementation as well. So it's after you've booked, we can send you an email and say, hey, you know, it, weather might not be looking so good or, or you know, your trip's coming up. Would, would you like to purchase, uh, purchase a guarantee around it? So you mentioned that you do weather for everywhere. And for our listeners out there, could you just give us an idea of what it's like to be the CEO for this organization? How many people work there? What are your day-to-day -day responsibilities and activities? Yeah, so we're your team 15 now, um, growing. Some exciting news coming up. Um, expect you know team size to double or triple before the end of the year. Uh, when I first started the business, you know that that initial proof of concept that was me coding, um, and then it was hiring engineers and product people uh, one by one, sort of forking off parts of my job, the technical parts of my job, 
where then, you know, they, they took over and looked at my code and productionized it way better than ever, you know, I ever could. And so, you know, and, and now we're, we have, you know, the team of 15 and, and many different departments, um, and they, they all kind of share roles, which at one point in time were mine. And so that's kind of the biggest thing, um, is being, you know, being a CEO and starting a company, you know, a lot of it in the beginning is you, but as you grow, you outsource it to people that are better than you could ever be at their job. Uh, so that's, you know, it, on the one hand, that's, that's fine. And that you get to work with people that are, that are better than you at a you know, particular thing that you need to get done. On the flip side, you kind of end up with all the garbage, <laughs> um, which is you know, not, not saying that you know, my job is garbage, but I think it's, it's, it's dawned on me recently that my job now is less interesting uh, than many of my employees on a day-to-day basis. But you now get to support your employees, and so you take on a little bit more of a mentorship role. Would you say that's true? I think that's right. So you've given us a little bit of a window into what you might not like about your job as much now, but let's back up and talk about what you, what you love about your job as you've created it at this point. That's, that's hyperbole. I, I, the hyperbole, I my, of course. I love, my, I love my job. I just think it's funny that that's how it's evolved. It is funny. So, so what, do you, what, what else do you love about your job? Give us a couple specifics. Um, so, so I've kind of you know, come to the realization over now my sort of three careers, first as an academic, then in finance, now doing, now doing my own company, that I like building things. Um, I like starting from nothing and going zero to one. And, you know, as an, as a, as an academic, when you're doing your PhD, that's exactly what that is. You go and yes, you, you come into an organization where you have support and you have advisors, but you're effectively trying to figure something out that nobody else has figured out before. And you have questions and people can point you in the right direction, but they don't have the answer. Uh, and, you know, similarly, that's, that's what building a company is. So when, you know, I finally left and, you know, hedge funds are similar, it's basically building a company except under, under the umbrella of a bigger company where you're building quantitative strategies, whatever that starts with an idea and then you, you build it up. Um, when I finally left and started a company, I was like, you know what, this actually feels very familiar. Um, Mm. so, you know, I think it's, I think it's remarkably similar to doing a PhD, um, so lots of transferable skills. Yeah, totally. I think if you, if you think broadly about, you know, what it is that you're doing, which is building stuff, um, totally, you know, as even before that, as an engineer in undergrad, that's, that's what engineers do. They build stuff. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's just, maybe, maybe it's just been a part of my life for a long time. It's, it's manifested in many different ways. And this is just the most recent one. Yeah. And in a PhD program, I mean, you have to be very disciplined and, you know, you have to be focused and those uh, are the same things that you need and the same skills for starting, starting a company. So you've told us the things that you like about your job on the flip side. What is one of the biggest challenges you face in your field? Um, I, I, I guess, well, for me personally, I mean, I miss, I do miss being hands-on and actually, you know, coding and building stuff and thinking about problems at the core level. Um, I suppose, you know, bigger, bigger challenges for the company. Uh, this is a new product. You know, I think similar, similar challenges exist for all startups and, and also for doing a PhD, for example, you know, for example, um, you have to convince people, uh, yeah, you have to convince people that, you know, in a company that's, that starts with, you know, convincing investors to give you money. 
then it's convincing potential employees to join you. Uh, for us, you know, then it's convincing companies to 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 partner with us, and then it's convincing their consumers to purchase our products. So it's it's kind of a constant educational cycle where it's a uh, it's really greenfield, and there's lots of different ways that we can you know approach the challenge of convincing various people to get on board with you, um, and we you know we try and figure out what the what the best ones are uh, bit by bit. It's a learning experience. It sounds like in this type of position. You need more than just math and science. It sounds like you need some very good communication and presentation skills as well. Those soft skills seem to be very important. Yes, in general. However, a lot of times, you know, you can also, you know, that's, that's what co-founders are for too. Um, so, so if you don't have all the skills, you can, you can certainly, you know, group together. That's, that's generally the better way to do it. <laughs> but would you say you've gained some public speaking and communication skills on the job since becoming a CEO and, and kind of de facto the face of the company in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it comes down to confidence. Um, you know, it's the same public speaking as an academic. You, you get up in front of a lecture hall full of 200 people. When you first do it, you know, first or second year as a grad student, it's incre- you're incredibly nervous. Um, by the end, in your postdoc, you're like, yeah, whatever. Um, and I think the, you know, the more you do it and the more you become confident in what you're doing and what you know, it, it just gets easier. Um, I think you know, public speaking is like, I don't know, there's, there's the statistics. It's like the number one fear or whatever. Um, I don't think it has to be, you know, it's just people. It's just people. That's a good bit of advice. So we're going to end with some advice directed towards particularly student listeners or other job seekers uh, looking in the field of weather consulting and the future job outlook. But I wanted to briefly touch on a couple of other uh, terms you mentioned you mentioned greenfield, which I believe is an uh, alludes towards the idea of of a the grass is always green around the other side of the fence, sort of that there's always it's a new untouched pasture, Un- is that untouched correct? pasture. That's a that's the that's a right um, the right way to and, think and, and perhaps the green might be grass, but it might also be money in another sense. Perhaps, uh, yeah, I think perhaps. generally it's the the grass, but both are true. So now let's move on and talk about what types of positions in in this weather consulting uh, fusion of uh, uh, fintech and climate risk and weather risk. What do you see? the opportunities are for folks that are maybe just entering the field? I am extremely jealous of folks that are just entering the field. Uh, there is so much opportunity now. There is so much interesting stuff going on uh, in the climate space in general, whether that's whether that's data. I mean, climate, climate data and analytics and, and weather forecasting uh, is, is way more of a field, uh, a commoditized field than it ever was. There's more opportunity there than I've ever seen before. There's more demand for it, uh, both from the U.S. government, from industry, from consumers. Uh, it seems like there's you know, opportunity popping up all over the place to, to make your mark um, in, in rolling together some, some data analytics, you know, which is my field. Um, but you know, on top of that, you know, we're also seeing physical stuff, engineering, carbon capture, uh, resilience measures. You know, there's there's just so much going on in climate right now. And I think it's you know, from my perspective, is I always think back to sort of right when I started Sensible, where the last time there was kind of a green revolution was sort of the you know around the financial crisis, and it basically died with that. Um, you know, ten years later, 
prior to COVID, there wasn't really, a, you know, other, other than the academic community, you know, making as much noise as they could and governments starting to pay attention, it still wasn't quite in vogue. Um, but, you know, right around the time that we started Sensible, at that, at that moment, there was, you know, the largest wildfire the world had ever seen in Australia, um, which the images, you know, coming through the media, horrific. It seemed like everybody started paying attention to it. Finally, um, you know, in addition to the wildfires in California, um, wildfire seems to really capture people's, captures people's attention. Uh, but then COVID hit and it seems people, you know, that, that became a more acute thing that people were paying attention to. But then, you know, six months in, once we realized that, yes, this is horrible, but it's, you know, we're going to get through it. I think everybody's attention focused back on like, all right, what's the next big thing that's going to affect us all? And they landed on climate, which is, it's, it's like, yes, finally, finally people are paying attention. So it's just, I think it's incredibly, an incredibly exciting time to be entering the space, either as an undergraduate, a graduate student, um, you know, whatever it is. Well, that's some some positive feedback for our listeners. It's, it's really good to hear that there are so many opportunities. To put a number on it, I, I believe I found this on your website, uh, $4 trillion of GDP impacted by the weather. Um, so that's a large portion of money on the line due to, and, and growing. Due to weather. And so that, that, that leaves a space. That leaves a space for a lot of people to be involved and growing. Yeah, I mean, the way that I so, think about it is... You know, with climate change, where you know the, the frequency uh, and intensity of potentially damaging weather and climate events is increasing, that as population grows and as our physical infrastructure grows, there's also more stuff to get damaged. So these things convolve together. It's it's just you know the there's there's a lot. I mean, a lot of risk, but that that equates to a lot of opportunity. Uh, there's a, there's a lot to do, a lot of problems to solve. Well, Nick, we're really grateful for you joining us today and telling us all about your professional journey. Uh, but before we go, we always like to ask our guests one last fun question unrelated to science or meteorology, just to find out more about the person. Um, and you did touch on skiing, and I'm wondering if this may be your favorite hobby. And I'd like to ask you if that's so, and tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so skiing, skiing and snowboarding, certainly my favorite hobby. I'm actually dialing in from, from Mammoth Lakes uh, right now. So I've been skiing this week. Um, I mean, interesting, you, know, you, you mentioned hobby aside from science. Obviously, for me, they're all, it's all tied up. Um, you know, so, so it's, it, it, but that, you know, that's, that's, that's how, how it is. That's, that's, I guess, how it is for me. I'm a big, you know, skier, skier and also snowboarder. I'll try and get, and I think I skied 50 days last year. Uh, oh my gosh. This year, That's awesome. this year, not nearly as much. Um, seven months ago, I had my wife and I had our first kid, um, which has uh, really uh, put a, put a damper on my skiing. Um, but that, you know, that's, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not still trying. Well, you have to start trying some cross country skiing and then you can put them in, put them in a little polk. I yeah. used to do that with my son, but you had mentioned too previously, and I was curious about, um, the big storm where, where there was a hundred inches of snow. Can you actually downhill ski when there's that much snow? Well, sure. You're on top of it. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, aren't you like sinking though? Don't well, you just it, like it sink in down there? And, you know, I think that there's, there's a, there's a lot of questions there, right? So, you know, the, I think the first one that comes to mind for me is avalanche. Um, right. I, exactly. So I, you know, I did my avalanche cert a number of years ago and, 
even if, even if the snow packs down, it packs down in layers, and those layers may very well be unstable. So these are things that you do have to think about skiing. I mean, I think ski patrollers now, there's you know they do a phenomenal job, and there's there's a science and an art to that uh, to make it possible for skiers to enjoy you know the the sport that they love, even when the you know conditions outside of the resort are potentially dangerous. So yeah, I mean you know that that year skiing was impossible for a while because they couldn't run the lifts. Uh, they had to, they had to unbear, you know, sure. I guess you could hike up the mountain. Um, even then I think there was probably risks just because of the amount of snow and the avalanche danger, but eventually once, once they dug out the lifts and the snow settled a little bit, yeah, you could go ski. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nick, uh, giving us a little bit of a financial primer. I really enjoyed hearing from you and learning from you. And thank you so much for sharing your work experiences with us. And, um, I'm sure you look forward to being able to teach your a child how to ski or snowboard. I can't, I can't so thank wait. you again. And I appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies, and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest. 